Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. Human beings, it turns out, are weird, and I will never truly understand what it's like to be one. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, we're doing an episode about consciousness today. Do you think we can get through it without mentioning zombies? <laughs> I, I thought maybe yes. But the only class on the philosophy of mind I ever took ended up being an entire, an entire class on zombies. And so... I feel like the only real philosophy of mind I know is just like versions of zombie arguments. So, zombie but, center. but I dropped out of the, I dropped out of that class. I always do wonder how philosophers come up with the examples um, that they, that they come up with. And I feel like there is this just general kind of sub game, like a little side game that philosophers have amongst themselves to see who can come up with the dumbest examples or cleverest or weirdest or like, no other field uses that. It's true. So someone said about Daniel Dennett that he told he told his grad students at Tufts just come up with the craziest <laughs> few you can think of and then just defend that for your whole career. It'll give you a career right there. Yeah. Wow. And I think that's like the thought experiment. If you can <laughs> if you can figure out like land on a thought experiment, then you know you have a career. Look at Gettier. That was yeah, you know. like a Gettier. Like that is his career. It seems like if that's true of Dennett's views, then it would undermine the truth value of that. <laughs> like, I know that those arguments ought to stand on their own, but if I found out that Dennett actually secretly didn't believe them, <laughs> then I'd be like, oh, fuck. Well, I mean, I think, isn't this the way it works? Like, you, you maybe you start out for disingenuous reasons, believing something that you think is actually crazy, but then you start really believing it as you defend it like over and over again. Is this autobiographical? Is this, is this, are you giving us a roadmap to future Tam? I'll publicly state it so that if anyone sees it happening, they can just snap me out of it, you know? <laughs> no, but you know, the, that, uh, the, uh, there is some truth to that. That's, that's, uh, that's how I feel about uh, the morality of, the moral acceptability of bestiality. <laughs> started out being a joke right it was just trolling my students to be logic you know like goading them to be logically coherent and then finally i'm like no nah, i guess there's nothing wrong with it i actually never <laughs> thought bestiality was wrong or at least with dogs all right we're not that kind of show all right what are we gonna do what are we gonna do before we're gonna do so teaser we're gonna talk about nagels what is it like to be a bat we have not talked about a thomas nagel essay in a while 
Perhaps the most famous, the most famous one, would you say? Um, I mean, not for me, for me, moral luck is, but that's just because I come from the free well, field. Not f- the, yeah. Fame isn't about whether you know it. Fame is about how many people know it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm talking about the subjective ex- character of fame, um, not the... Not the objective character of fame. Yeah, no. Right. It, I think it's polled everybody in the, the world. This would be the one that most people have heard of. The point, the the point three percent who didn't click show me the results on the Twitter poll. <laughs> <laughs> we could, yeah. But before that, um, we are going to revisit a show that we championed from the beginning. I think you even recommended it before it had even aired on usa right like it was i have a vivid experience Uh, yeah i was on a long layover in the airport and on on youtube i heard about this show and i sat there and watched the youtube version before it aired on usa and i was like fucking mind blown it may be mind blown not so much but just in love from the get-go then mind blown a little bit later maybe yeah, so this is Mr. Robot, um, in case you haven't guessed right now. And I think we both, we talked a lot about it in the first season, and we loved the first season, thought it was one of the best seasons of television that we'd seen in a long time. Um, it, it took like a turn to definitely not mediocrity. It had awesome moments sam esmail is always a just a fun director and he directed all the episodes in season two and three but it just lost its specialness a little bit and it got bogged down in certain things that i don't know we stopped being obsessed with it it was yeah i think we talked about a a few episodes in season two um yeah and and then just silently stopped. And some people have asked us to pick it up. I think it got significantly better in season three, but we didn't pick it up again in discussion, right? We did. I think we talked about the whole season and, and we said that it was better than season two, which had some real low moments like the chess and game in the woods and stuff. <laughs> uh, but it was also, we kind of said, I think at the time, it's time to wrap this up, you know? And I think... Yeah. They were thinking that too. And so season four, it was like, there's no fanfare about it. I texted you. I don't think you even knew that it was no. coming on, right? I had and, no idea. And and like there was no, there was barely any articles about it. It was, it was weird. And I don't know. I felt like I owed it to the show I, to give it a benefit of the doubt and watch the first episode, which I thought was phenomenal. And then the second episode, which I also thought was phenomenal, and also drops a big mystery. So let's I figured we should talk about it. And but before we do, let everybody know that this is spoiler territory and that they should watch it. Yeah, yeah for the first two episodes. What I, I I think these first two episodes have just sort of reminded me why I was more obsessed with it. Um, not that they have no flaws, but. Yeah, he. I can't. I. Can't, I'm not skilled yet, or perhaps I don't know enough yet about the season to know why I'm getting the feeling that something is back. Some some sort of magic uh, yeah. quality um, is back. But I agree. So spoilers up to episode two. Episode three is out, but we haven't watched it. Um, I watched so, the cold open, the very long oh, cold open, did. but that's it. You, know, you told me not to watch it, you fucker. 
<laughs> Please go watch the show. If you're like us and you kind of just let it go for a little bit, and also it's been two years since season three, then watch the first two episodes and then come back to this segment. Skip to the Nagel. That's right. Skip to the Nagel. Yeah. That's like a song. Yeah. <laughs> Skip to the Nagel. This is a good opportunity to let me remind people that we put chapter markers if you have a podcast client that, that actually ha- supports them. All right. First big thing that happens in episode one is it's a very cool way that it opens. It does a previously on, which I don't know about you. I desperately needed because I didn't remember as practically anything from season three. Um, uh, absolutely. I, yeah, there's a there's even a special on iTunes. If you buy it, there's like a, a Leon's recap. Oh, um, God, that's awesome. <laughs> I didn't see that. Uh, yeah. I would love that. Uh, Joey badass. So yeah, so like, and then the the end of the previously on is Angela talking to Philip Price. This is one thing I did remember, and Philip Price saying, "I'm I'm your father." And then it just continues with that scene, and Angela is killed by the Dark Army, shot by the Dark Army. All you hear is the pop, and we assume she's dead, like really dead. Um, there's a Darlene in a coked up kind of frame, mind frame says that she saw her, but that, as far as I can tell, that's the only indication that something funky is happening. Uh, right. You know, you start, you start from the get go wondering what's up with what the director is trying to do to us, because on the one hand, the scene of price walking away and her getting shot in the distance is uh, perhaps just there as a as an emotional tool. On the other hand, he didn't show us her, you know, the bloody corpse. I think maybe you're supposed to certainly the way that the actress Portia Doubleday has talked about it. It was like, that's it. I'm not on the show anymore. That was the first big bombshell. And then at the end of episode two, there is a huge bombshell. And we'll talk about what happens in between, but we might as well just say it right now that Elliot has a third personality, that there is Elliot, there's Mr. Robot, and those two now seem pretty cool with each other. But then there's a third that we've seen, but that neither Elliot nor Mr. Robot know about. So yeah, and this is where you told me that you got to watch these two episodes because this is a mystery just in the style of the old Mr. Robot mystery, right? Like we've had, I think the problem with season two was that they kind of tried for a mystery and it wasn't a very good one. It didn't, it didn't seem to have like the depth of the mysteries that we had in season one. And, uh, and this this has posed something uh, truly, truly perplexing. And I'll say it right now, this will determine whether this show goes down as a good show or not, because what Esmail does with this reveal, um, if it is in any way smells of foulness, like unfairness or, or I don't know, cheapness, yeah. it's going to be bad. It's going to and- be bad. And he's put all his cards in. He's said, like, this is a big reveal that the show's been leading up to. There have been clues from the beginning. He does these interviews after each episode with Hollywood Reporter. He said, "I, I go on the Reddit boards and stuff, and I haven't seen this theory tossed around that much. Now, this is before everyone started theorizing about who the, <laughs> yeah. the third Elliot is, but 
I, I think you could love these episodes without that just because there's so many just awesome scenes in them. Right. The the scene where they go into the honeypot in the hotel, that kind of li- totally very Lynch influenced scene with yeah. the guy speaking Polynesian, or I guess I don't know if it's a hotel or an apart like an old apartment building, but right. and that's where it looks like at the end of episode one, Elliot's going to be killed, or he maybe he is killed and. Uh, by Sam Esmail. At Sam Esmail plays the guy <laughs> who injects him with what I guess is supposed to be like a hot shot, right? Like uh, some sort of yeah. I, I take it that it was heroin. That yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I noticed that I didn't know Esmail was going to make a an appearance, but he does it and he says goodbye, friend. Yeah. And then the episode ends. It goes to credits, but then it immediately comes back, <laughs> and he wakes up, and it's Philip Price who saves his li- life. Presumably because he's he they killed his daughter and so he wants Elliot to help get revenge. Right. So so just as a as a bit of a recap, um, the big the big bad right now is White Rose, who is um, we we have known all along that she is pulling all of the strings. We don't know exactly for what, although we know it involves a big operation that has moved to the Congo now. Or and it's, that no, it hasn't is, quite yet. Right. Like oh, that's yeah. the problem. It's delayed. The move it's is delayed. delayed. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And so right. this is the thing that's frustrating my white rose. Right. Price and white rose uh, didn't see eye to eye. White rose has Angela, his daughter killed. So Price wants revenge. They've always been sort of antagonistic with each other. Um, but he thinks Elliot can get him. He's skeptical, but he thinks Elliot might be able to help him get revenge. Yeah. That seems a little clunky is he saves his life then gives this whole backstory of white rose and about that he's um he created this deus group which is like this illuminati that montage of all of history sort of in the last 40 years is great it was very cool the way they did that they put with a young bd wong in there yeah, they just Who put plays well, a young B.D. Wong and like, you know, with Dick Cheney and with the, with the Berlin Wall coming down and with uh, and, and he's always there. And then you find out that he was building this machine in this Washington Township plant, the one that killed uh, Angela's mom and Elliot's dad, gave them cancer. And it was all for that. The Deus group thought, no, this is for us to control the world. But minute right. but but white rose was just doing using them to build this machine we don't know yet what the big machine is and that was the cause of rampant speculation angela seemed to believe that it was a time machine that could bring back her uh mother but there has been really no discussion uh, of what that machine is um so far Angela um, said she saw it for what that's worth, and and right. and that even at the end before she died, she still believed it would allow her to see her mother, even right. though she right. also kind of understood that White Rose had kind of conned her. So that, that like that fueled much of my thinking about Mister Robot so far. Like that this mystery about what this machine is is he creating parallel universes? And then right. we had the whole plot that we didn't mention about you know the first season involved this uh, elaborate hack into essentially encrypting all of the world's all, all of the biggest banks financial documents um they undo the hack at the end of last season and the world goes back to presumably normal people have the the world had gone to shit because that hack 
even though it was intended by Elliot and F Society to be good, like this panacea that would make the world a better place. It ended up making everybody miserable and nobody had access to resources. And so they undo the hack. That's the end of the season. Things are seeming to get back to normal. None of that is very convincing, by the way. <laughs> like the idea that, you know, everything's just going to suddenly get back to normal after all the credit was destroyed and all the banks, you know, like all the, <laughs> yeah. it, it, and now it just kind of undid it. But it but it's part of this theme of changing the past, right? Like right. undoing what was done, a bad thing that was done. And that relates to the machine, too. Something about this machine seems to relate to this idea of undoing the past. But the one, I think the one, one of the key takeaways now is that as because the economy has come back, um, ECOR having regained control over finances has even more control than before. So right. they have like uh, instituted their Bitcoin, their version of, of Bitcoin, their e-core stuff. And they, they clearly are in control, e-coin, they're clearly in control of all the finances. So they have more power than ever as a result right. of the hack. And the and, and they did also, after the hack, like pre the hack, the e-core always has the most power regardless of whether anybody hacks or not. You know, and that's been right. one of the... One of the very, you know, the, the, the very cynical, pessimistic takes of the show is that, like, you can do these things, but they'll always win. The big right. money. It's the inevitability wins. of capitalism right now. Yeah. You so, want to talk about yeah. first who, what you think the machine is? Yeah. I don't think they've given us anything new in this, in this, uh, these couple of episodes about the machine. And we speculated before, you know, my... <laughs> My theory with little endorsement was, I think it's in a Ted Chang kind of way, accesses parallel streams, parallel universes, so that you can access sort of a nearby parallel universe where something might be uh, yeah. slightly different. Um, I don't know. You know, t to this point, Esmail has t done nothing but tease us with sci-fi premises and kept everything realistic. So yeah, like, you know, right. there is nothing, there is... There is nothing so far to indicate that anything weird has gone on in in the in the supernatural yeah. or in the magical or in the sci-fi kind of sense. Aside from like like you said, the teases, like he has that scene. Uh, scientist at the beginning of season two is talking about parallel universes, like giving a tour of of a facility and right. talking about parallel universes. There's this just relentless obsession with time travel you know like that started with angela and elliot's favorite movie being back to the future too right, right? and then right. all sorts of th you know uh, white rose uh obsessed with time and talking about um never meeting anybody more than once and 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 yeah. you know timing every conversation that she had and um and so time has yeah. been this running theme but you're right in terms of Anything in the show, it's, right, it's more right. like that, like mental breakdown, psychosis is part of this world, but not any indication that this stuff, science fiction-y stuff is... Right, to the extent that, that Angela believed in the possibility of the real technology, um, you know, she was treated as, as having lost her mind. Yeah. And so, so there is a thin... <laughs> I can see a big reveal having a lot to do with some sci-fi aspect, but 
I suspect that Esmail has been really guarded in this because he's just using the possibility of, of sci-fi worlds as sort of metaphorically, like to talk about time, to talk about back to the future and talk about people believing in time machines. And regret and wanting to change the past. I know that people probably want to, like I want to believe that they that White Rose really is building something like a parallel universe machine. Perhaps White Rose believes that she's building a parallel universe machine. But if Esmail shows us some sort of actual uh, sci-fi device, I'm not sure I wouldn't feel a little betrayed, you know, like in the, yeah. the, the rules of this world haven't hinted at anything that sophisticated. So you want it to not be a science fiction I, outcome? I wanted it to be um, originally, but I think that with three seasons of never even throwing us a bone about, about, any actual sci-fi stuff that I think it would be a little unfair now. Well, what if they, what if they, if if, in retrospect, it turns out that they have thrown us bones. Yeah. There's where, yeah. Yeah. You know, are you familiar with, uh, I, I don't for the life of me would never remember who wrote these or when, but there are these rules for mystery writers that were sort that, that somebody put down a long time ago. And, uh, like one of them is essentially like you have to give the reader enough information to like plausibly arrive at the solution or right. else it's just unfair. So if it turns out that there were hints all over the place um, that in, re- yeah, another one I, re- I remember is in the, it should be hard to solve, but in retrospect, the solution should be almost like inevitable. Right. Yes. Which is how he's yeah. talked about not the reveal of the time machine or whatever it is, but the reveal of the third. Um, right. So he's clearly aware of that rule and he hopes that he's done it. He believes that he's done it, but Sam Esmail, I mean, but yeah, we'll see. Yeah. He's respected his audience so far. So he yeah. knows that we're thinking this and he right. doesn't want to disappoint us. He doesn't want to do like a lost thing. I think that it's very possible that it, there, the what we'll get is two ways of interpreting it. You can go more science fiction-y or you can go more psychological and he'll leave that up to us. So like, you know, the show is always kind of from somebody's perspective, usually Elliot's we think. And so crazy things can happen. There can be talking fish. There can be... Um, child characters talking to themselves at a when they're adults and all that but that's okay because it's like a hallucination or my guess is we won't be told which way to interpret i think i'll be okay with but you know that's because david lynch has beaten me down when it comes to those (laughs) things i i mean i i see the parallels that you're drawing but like Lynch is so mysterious about it that you're not sure whether there's 18 ways of interpreting it or no ways of interpreting it. Like Esmail will give us two, right? Yeah, <laughs> like, right. And he's yeah. and and Lynch also just almost never talks about it. And, and right, Sam Esmail is on Reddit, like telling. Yeah, him. that's which is like you know normally I would say that's just a terrible idea for uh, somebody who's trying to do creative yeah. work, you know. Um, <laughs> but he, I, I like that he just decided, no, I'm going to be, that's going to be kind of part of the show. It's not going to be a big part of the show, but like, well, this gets into my theory about what's going on. Okay. 
All right, should we talk about that then? The third. Yeah, let's okay. let's let, let's talk about it. Um, so so at the end, at the very end of episode two, we see a scene where um, young Elliot is in the big corporate room that we've seen before from Ecor a couple of times. We've seen Tyrell in there. We saw Elliot being offered a job there by Tyrell. Um, yeah, by Tyrell. Um, but before that, we are told immediately before that, we see this uh, perplexed uh, Mr. Robot and Elliot who are trying to figure out who Darlene talked to because Darlene claims that she talked to them. Darlene says she talked, told Elliot that Vera, Vera from yes. season one was back in, in town. And Elliot right. didn't know that. And then he gets mad at Mr. Robot for not for not telling him because they're supposed to be communicating now and mr robots i swear to god it wasn't me right and then, i'm my language was clunky because from darlene's perspective th- it is the same right. like bag of bones that she's talking to so yeah. she wouldn't be able to distinguish um and so yeah so they they're like well who did she tell so clearly this has to be another identity because you know it can't be like oh she told so-and-so because she obviously believes that it was the same you know bag of meat and bones that is elliot and mr robot um and she has no idea why they would you know she would have no idea why they wouldn't know and they're perplexed so we know boom there's another identity and then we go to that scene and we see elliot's mom and elliot's a kid he's sitting in tyrell's chair he's child elliot yeah and he's spinning around waiting for something I've been looking all over for you. You shouldn't be sitting there. That's not your seat. What? They're not ready yet. We need to wait. For what? For him. You mean Mr. Robot? No. Elliot? No. The other one. Um, that sort of surreal uh, scene. You don't know if it's, it's obviously not a flashback. You don't know who's imagining it. Like what, where is this scene taking place? Is this right. a scene? Is it, does it exist in it, it? Or is it in someone's mind? Whose mind would it be in? And uh, I, mean, I guess so Elliot's, Elliot's mind, right? Like that would be, I think the most natural assumption. I'm not saying it's right, but it's just as Elliot's kind <laughs> of way of manifesting his confusion. I, I suppose it could be Mr. Robot's mind. I don't know how to talk about this anymore because <laughs> Mr. Robot's mind is Elliot's mind. But yeah. right. then they leave the room and that's yeah. uh, who, who is the third? <laughs> so who is the third man? Um, uh, there was a you, third man. <laughs> you, we talked briefly. You told me that Esmail said that there's a hint to the identity. Yeah, I didn't see it in the interview, but I saw on Reddit that somebody said that that season one, episode four, that hallucin- the withdrawal hallucination has hints to it. 
Right. So if what I think is right, then it's going to take a, a very skillful S mail to pull it off. So tell me what you think. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So um, I think the appropriate hint in that episode, season one, episode four, comes not from any of the hallucinations, but comes from the beginning of the episode where Elliot very clearly states when he's speaking to us, Elliot's always been speaking to the audience, mm-hmm. at least so we thought. Um, Elliot says, it's why I created you. Right. And, and I think we've all just taken it as a conceit that this character is one that breaks the fourth wall and speaks to the audience. Right. I think that Esmail has hidden in plain sight a third person. Now, that third person is somebody who uh, would normally not make themselves known as I think this, the second hint in that opening of season one, episode four, um, that's titled Damon. Um, mm-hmm. When Elliot goes on to describe what a daemon is, right? A daemon in, in <clears throat> computer programming is a subroutine that's running behind the scenes and it's just doing a bunch of work. And it's sort of just not at the surface at all. It's just let loose. A, a daemon is, is a sort of an independent sub-process that is going on in your computer. I think that the person he's talking to is the daemon. The daemon gets the dirty work done. The, the daemon has only appeared during the blackouts where uh, we don't have any idea what happened, where neither Mr. Robot nor Elliot can be accounted for. Um, like when the, the four days, uh, when uh, that are missing, um, at the end of season one, at the end of season one. And, uh, I think that it's plausible that that's who Elliot has been talking to the whole time. He's not been breaking the fourth wall at all. Now it could be that, that, uh, and this is why I said it, it reminded me of this when you said Esmail is somebody who reads Reddit a lot. It could be that he is, it's a real radical breaking of the fourth wall where he is treating the viewership of uh, Mr. Robot as that character. Yeah, that's certainly a thought that I had, which is, yes, is that we are the third. Right. And that all along we've been third. I don't know how you would weave that in narratively, but it would be sort of cool given how much he seems to listen to the audience. It'd be sort of cool if within the show, Elliot has created like in some sense, the armies of Reddit are like doing a lot of this work uh, behind the scenes, you know, and probably giving him some ideas about where to go. Um, The problem with that is like Darlene says she told this third that Vera was back. She doesn't speak to us and say, I saw Vera, right? Like, No, 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 no. yeah. Uh, Yeah. I mean, I think that this for this to work, it has to be somebody inside. Like it has to be a consciousness inside the meat and bones of Elliot's body. So so when I say it's the audience. I mean only that it's a consciousness that would be sort of composed of of the the multitude audience that that um but but again like he could it could be something that he means sort of only metaphorically but is actually a separate personality that represents the audience or something or it could be not it could be that he was never talking to the audience at all. So then in the hallucination in your view the mo- you know this this idea of a monster I found my monster who's my monster keeps coming up i take it that could be 
this kind of third personality, the one that does the dirty work and gets shit done. Like Elliot is the nice, fucked up, uh, anxiety-ridden version. Mr. Robot is the, you know, more I'll cut corners to get things done, but I'm fundamentally good, maybe like, you know, how he sees his dad. And then this third one is just a bad guy that will do really bad things to achieve his ends that's right and who might be responsible for for who knows communications with white rose that led directly to some extra bad shit happening um somebody on reddit put a screenshot of the offices at the also all safe the the um security company from season one where elliot used to work now defunct he's taken over their offices as his makeshift headquarters somebody put a screenshot of three monitors so two monitors on the desk one monitor in the middle with a bunch of code only just a terminal window taking up the whole screen it's just a bunch of computer code on the left of that there was um uh like social media stuff pictures of elliot and then on the right, there's no monitor at all. It's just a monitor stand. So there's clearly a third monitor missing. And, you know, like that's, I'm not saying that this isn't reading far too much into it, but it wouldn't be weird to think that that's representing the activities on the monitors represent the, the personalities of the people. And he's just not revealed to us what would be on that third screen. So wait, here's my question about that theory, though. Why doesn't Elliot, if he's talking to him, and that says that's why I created you. Then why does he not know this person exists or that this third entity exists? And that's a really good question that I had not <laughs> thought anything about. So it could be that when Elliot does talk to us, he is in a complete fugue state of some sort. But I don't think so. Like, like he does it too often. If, yeah. Yeah. So now the only now he doesn't anymore. Actually, Mister Robot. That's one of the twists. Uh, that's that right. Mr. In this Robot season, is now narrating to us. Right. So it could be that he's always known about this third personality, has repressed it completely at the beginning of this. Right. So one of the things that we are told about Elliot is that he is suppressing so much of his emotion that that it's bad for him. So he could have repressed that third personality and now claims to be completely unaware or perhaps is unaware of any communication. Um, so I rewatched a couple of these episodes. I like that theory. I think it's most plausible. I don't know how much I like it. Like, I think it's a very plausible theory based on what we know. The demons and the details. Right? Yeah. Like it's, it will have to be it, well I, done. <laughs> yeah. And I like part of me thinks, is that really a third identity or is that like, how do you know whether that's just Elliot in a bad emotional state or that's like the third personality like it it doesn't even necessarily like we all like i like we all get angry and pissed off and do bad like we all have a bad side of us it's it's not another personality in the way that like mr robot is another personality in a way that so i don't know like like you said it'll be it'll like I, i i believe that it could be done well um should we go through a couple other alternatives so you know, I, I was looking at it today, and when he's dying, there there's Elliot as a kid and his mother and father. And Elliot, young Elliot says, so like he's all of a sudden like in his old kitchen, 
and he's there with his parents. And then someone says, the, sorry, young Elliot says, what happens now? And the mother says, well, we all go away. It, yeah. And so, so, uh, so is it the mother? Yeah. I, I, this is I don't a, get um, that, though. Like, I don't. That, it, that would be sense. hard given the last scene. But the reason that I like it is, is because it might give us an evil character who does bad shit, too. Right. Um, and it, it might be consistent with it. Yeah. And she's a very bad theory. person. Yeah. And she's all we've heard, all we've heard in these last two episodes is what a bitch their mom was. And we've right. seen it before. Like we've seen it. Yeah. You even see it in the hallucination where she's like forcing him to eat the fish. And yeah, that would make sense if in that scene where, um, they're in the boardroom, little Elliot is Elliot, you know, Mr. Robot's not there. Um, and the mom is the third personality. She wouldn't say, right. you know, then we would expect for Mr. Right. Robot to be walking in. Right. Yeah, exactly. So that doesn't, although he says it. Elliot, does he say Elliot as well? So yeah. indicating that he, the little boy is not even Elliot. Right. So one of the ones that I thought from the beginning and then was persuaded otherwise just by the show was Tyrell. Like I yeah. always thought that Elliot was Tyrell um, in, early on in the season after I'd kind of figured out that he, he and Mr. Robot, they, that was barely hidden that he was Mr. Robot. I mean, I guess some people were surprised yeah. at the at the reveal, but it was like, it was kind of obvious. And if you see Fight Club too, it's like, it's unbelievable how how much of a, somewhere between a, a homage and just a ripoff of <laughs> yeah. Fight Club it was in terms of just how that stuff's shot. Um, but anyway, like, I remember thinking, but the real surprise is that it's Tyrell too, and the way they were shooting the Tyrell scenes just seemed really bizarre. And But it just, that doesn't make sense. Like, it just doesn't. No, it doesn't make, there's too, there's too much that rides. I think we talked about this at some point. There's, there's too much, um, that rides on the fact that Tyrell has interacted with the body of yeah. Elliot slash Mr. Robot. And it would take, I don't know that you could undo that. Like, you you know, there's no plausible way in which you could magically make, unlike the fight club shots where he's pushing himself up against the wall, right? Like, right. there's nothing that, that could, like, account for that. And Tyrell's always just not been, I don't know. He's always been Joanna Wellick's husband to me. There was that... <laughs> <laughs> there was that scene at the end of season one where he runs into Joanna Wellick, who clearly recognizes him and talks to him in Nor Norwegian. And that's a very strange scene. And she and Tyrell ha gave off kind of vibes. Like she gave off a vibe that's very much like his mother. And so there's there could there's there definitely could be something weird about that. But it doesn't totally fit. Um, Angela, I don't see it at all. Um, but yeah. they do have that shared history and the shared experience of losing a parent to the Washington township, but it doesn't work. I've heard Darlene as a theory, like a serious theory. It, it is weird that he tried to kiss her and didn't remember that <laughs> she was his sister. Cause that is not something that is consist like the fact that he wouldn't know that he had a sister is weird. But I don't. Maybe it was the maybe it was the Damon. Yeah, who tried to do it? It could have been right because yeah. we would see it from that perspective. People on Reddit have pointed out that there are times where Mister Robot isn't present 
when he seems to get angry, you know, in favor of your theory. Um, and so when he's there, Mr. Robot wouldn't know that he was there. And that explains why at least Mr. Robot doesn't know about this third personality. Um, That's right. Does, does, does Elliot ever talk to the audience when Mr. Robot is in the room? I believe so, yeah. And certainly Mr. Robot has been talking to the audience. Oh, Mr. Ray, that's right. Yeah. That's right. The the one I think is kind of interesting and I need to know more about is that El- that the new the third personality is like the original Elliot, Sam Sepiel. Um so he's been using Sam Sepiel is this alias that he was using to break into Steel Mountain and that 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 is actually a real guy in the show, although we don't know very much about him other than Elliot sometimes impersonates him, and that that is the real Elliot who and Elliot is just one of his forms. The Elliot that we see is one of his forms as well as Mr. Robot, but that there is this true kind of noumenal self. And that numinal self is Sam Sepiel. I don't. I don't know what to make of that. It's kind of interesting that we've always assumed that Elliot is the core person, and that and that the, yeah. you know Mr. Robot is the manifestation. But it could be that Elliot is just like Mr. Robot. He has no greater metaphysical reality than than him. It would be weird because of the shared history with Darlene and Angela, um, like. That, right. That, you know, they unless there was a real Elliot. conspiracy. Yeah, yeah. Unless there was a real conspiracy in which they all changed their names. Right. Um, I agree. Yeah. yeah. And then there's the idea that, like, going very meta, that it's Sam S. Male. But I, I hope yeah. that's not true. <laughs> I was just reading that Sam Sepiel is a combo of the names Sam S. Male and USA Development Chief Alex Sepiel. Yeah, I mean, there's, a, I mean, there's so like, there's a lot to every theory, and we're given so little, and we we have no real grasp on w- reality in this show, you know, because it's told from a from a perspective, kind of a first person perspective, and a very unreliable narrator. Like, it's yeah. very hard to get your bearings. I think. It's an interesting kind of unreliable narrator, too, because it's not as if the characters, when they're talking, you don't believe, mm-hmm. you know, he split their psyche so that you just don't know which they all like have separate uh, sequestered areas of knowledge. So you just don't know. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so it's an unreliable narrator where you don't distrust any of the characters who are speaking. Right. You just know that they don't have access to all of the truth. And the way they're doing, now that Elliot and Mr. Robot are kind of on the same team and yeah. working together, the way they're shooting that is kind of interesting because you have to remind yourself constantly that the person they're talking to is only seeing one of them. And we right. presume and- Elliot. You know, but every once in a while, Elliot will get sick of trying to convince Darlene of something. And and then and so Mr. Robot will step in. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. They 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 switch. They like tag team wrestle um, with the same body. Yeah, Uh, it's it's good. Like, I really like I'm I'm super glad that that there is a mystery worthy of the first season. Um, Yeah. You know, that it was unclear to me that you could go anywhere with this identity thing. And if you had told me in the first season, the end of the first season, oh, there's a third identity, I would have been like, 
really after you just reveal there's a second yeah um in some sense yeah, it would be a better mystery because the the first mystery like we just knew it like i don't think yeah. i think by episode four we were all a hundred percent convinced that i mean yeah. it was almost pitched as as sort of a, a hacker fight club you know like a, yeah exactly so so um, maybe um, what we'll do is some patreon uh bonus episodes after like a couple of episodes yeah 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 go let's go watch it if you haven't i hope you have before you listen to this but it's 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 really good i'm so glad that it's good too like it makes me happy should we take a break yeah talk about something way less fun (laughs) so much less (laughs) (laughs) all right we'll be right back Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. Um, at this time, we like to take a moment to thank all of our listeners for all the different ways they get in touch with us and participate in the community. I mean, it's like we've built some sort of community um, with this podcast, which is one of my favorite things about it. And uh, it's really exciting and really rewarding to see what's going on there. Um, if you would like to get in touch with us you can email us at verybadwizards at gmail.com you can tweet us at, at peas at tamler or at verybadwizards you can follow us on instagram you can rate us on itunes and give us reviews we love that and you can join the conversation on the very bad wizards subreddit um, which we will um, sometimes participate in every so often um, discussions of the episodes and various other weird things that um, some of our listeners do. Like, I there have been a couple of like mini stories. Um, where <laughs> yeah, I've been a, who's writing like fan fiction of of Tamler? I it's yeah, it's very uncomfortable. It- like, because it's not like <laughs> flattering stories. They're more like <laughs> I'm scratching my balls and I don't even know how they know that I do that in those kinds of situations. And so, and, and also, uh, how a two year old solves a trolley problem. Did you see that? Oh yeah. Please post your uh, two year old trolley problem solving things. I just can't get enough of that. (laughs) I, you know, there's always new people joining the community, so they haven't seen it. That's fine, but we don't have to like it. We don't have to, we're not, we're not going to comment on (laughs) I see, like I don't even think that's an excuse anymore. Like at this point, at this point, they should already know that the trolley problem is. They should intuitively know that it's a priori at this. It's point. a priori. Yeah. 
<laughs> platonic knowledge. Um, so anyway, all joking aside, we really appreciate it. We love it. Even the stupid fucking trolley problem uh, videos that we've seen a million times. So thank you. Yeah, and uh, thank you. And if you want to support us in more tangible ways, um, i.e. Uh, financially, <laughs> you can become one of our beloved Patreons. Um, go to patreon.com slash verybadwizards or just go to our Very Bad Wizards support page. I'll link you to Patreon. There you can uh, pledge a small amount of money to us um, that we really, really, really appreciate. And uh, you'll get some bonus material. So what's up next for bonus? Well, we keep saying dark. Now we just threw Mr. Robot into the mix and the Deadwood yeah, and the Deadwood and character. Deadwood. Oh, we're going to do, let's, we have to do de- the, our favorite characters in Deadwood. I, I think know. that's, that's something that we just have to do. We, could we just s- have to do one. We just have to do like now, I, I'm mad that you've sort of given up on dark, but maybe we'll push that back till right before the new season. Um, yeah. Yeah. I feel like I have to like now I have to read recaps and shit. You just have to watch um, the whole thing again. It's really right. good in a in a very much of a Mister Roboty way. Like it it um it also has a creator that likes to participate with the online community and like it's he's posting Instagrams of filming the third and final season right now. And if you oh, wow. you can follow him on Instagram and you just get little <laughs> hints of what's to come and it's it's very cool. I am a fan, I'll say right now, of shows that know to keep their number of seasons down yes. to whatever whatever they need to tell the story. So outline your story. Um, another one that we've talked about talking about is The Leftovers. Yeah. Um, that's another one where it's just three seasons uh, yeah. and done. Um, but anyway, back to the topic at hand. Thank you very much for your support. You can also go to our Very Bad Wizards uh, support page on our website and give us a one-time or recurring PayPal donation. We appreciate that. And I know some of you um, can't be on Patreon and can do that. So thank you very much for all the ways in which you support us. We really appreciate it. Um, and uh, it's what keeps us going. Yes. Thank you. So... Thomas Nagel's What Is It Like to Be a Bat? This is a paper from 1974. One of a series of papers that Thomas Nagel did. And we've now done a bunch of them. Um, The Absurd is one. uh, Moral Luck is one. The Fragmentation of Value. And is there another one that we've done? What did you say? We did Death. Did you say Death? We did do Death. Uh, yes, we did death. Okay. So it must have been that. And we did ruthlessness in public life. That's the one that I'm thinking of. All of those papers are on very different topics. You know, there's the free will problem. There's the problem of meaning in life. There's the problem of, um, moral, like moral value, like the different kinds of moral value. And now with what is it like to be a bat? You have a really foundational paper I don't know about foundational, but a foundational for the new contemporary consciousness debate about um, the the hard problem of how consciousness can be explained in physical um, scientific terms. And all of these papers, even though they're on vastly different subfields of philosophy, they all have this character of a subjective 
perspective and an objective perspective, giving rise to a seemingly insoluble problem. In the case of um, the absurd, it was from the inside, it just feels like our choices and the things that we do and our behavior matters in some deep sense. But when we look at it from the outside, it it seems like nothing can matter, nothing can have this ultimate justification. And in the case of moral luck, it feels like when we make choices that we can be responsible for those choices. And then when you look at it from the outside, that will that we feel like we have seems to shrink to an extensionless point, as he said, that Kantian will. And um, and down the line, and in this paper, he says that this is the real problem with consciousness, is that it has this subjective character that um, the what is it like to have conscious experiences? What is it like to listen to a trumpet or to see these curtains that I'm staring at right now or to listen to you? Or that that has a character that it's really hard to understand how that could be explained in objective terms, the objective uh, language of science. There is this disconnect between how we approach scientific theories and, and in particular scientific explanations and what the subjective character of conscious experience is. And the way that he gets at it is to uh, frame this question about what it would be like to be a bat. And he chooses a bat because a bat, we assume, has some sort of conscious experience, but it's a very different kind of conscious experience than ours because they use echolocation um, as their primary uh, way of navigating the world, and we use our eyes and perception as the primary way of doing that. And so even though we can know how a bat um, is able to navigate around caves and dark bridges, and, and we can know the functional, in functional terms, what what the bat's perceptual apparatus is, how it functions, but and, and what its purpose is, but we still, that doesn't tell us what it would be like for a bat to be a bat. And, and so we have this, as I understand Nagel's argument, this, this real explanatory, like I, even though the term explanatory gap hasn't been coined yet, <laughs> He is pointing to the explanatory gap, that the tools of science, the tools of the concepts that science gives us, the method that science gives us, at present at least, it, it's, it's hard to even begin to understand how it would describe conscious experience. Right. So um, that's my best summary of the paper. Well done. Well done. Um, I... I was reluctant to try to give a summary myself because I vacillate between thinking that this is a super deep intract, uh, you know, point that's intractable in the study of the human mind and, <laughs> and something else. I'm not quite sure what else, but I wanted to say at this point, I know that we have a lot of listeners who <clears throat> may not have 
too much familiarity with the philosophy of mind, probably a whole bunch of them. And um, I think it's important to say that when Nagel is talking about consciousness, he is talking about it in the way that Tamler was describing <clears throat> the simple, what is it like to be? Not at all anything that like self-awareness, right? You might doubt whether or not a bat is self-aware. Um, that's that's a term that's sometimes used um, to, uh, synonymously with consciousness, but here it's just merely the subjective experience of being of being an organism and something that uh, Nagel believes we'd probably be convinced that most mammals have, whether or not some of these other animals like oysters have it or not is, is probably uh, it's at least up for debate, and certainly bats of the baseball variety don't have them. <laughs> um, and, and so that, how do you explain that, that thing? Whatever that thing is. And, and then of course it's a similar problem, maybe a little harder to identify how science could possibly explain our own subjective experience. We might believe, okay, yes, my conscious experience is the result uh, how it feels to be me is the result of neurons and all the you know the various molecules and and forces that are interplaying in my physical body and especially my brain. But how that could be true is a is the problem here. How to try to explain to me how that works? How these neurons firing uh, and activating how that gives rise to me seeing red or me hearing thunder or me feeling pain that seems to be a a problem so like if you tell me it's the result of like brain processes i believe you but it doesn't but it but it's not explained to me how how that can happen right you're not given information about what it's like to echolocate when the physical processes are described to you. And I guess that we should st start maybe where Nagel starts in this discussion, which is to say that perhaps that is why current discussions of the problem here of consciousness give it little attention or get it obviously wrong. The recent wave of reductionist euphoria, I love that phrase, <laughs> reductionist euphoria, has produced several analyses of mental phenomena and mental concepts designed to explain the possibility of some variety of materialism, psychophysical identification, or reduction. Here he means that everybody's so caught up in science and in the study of the material world and the physical world that they think it must be obvious that the solution to what consciousness is um, will come from just chugging away a little bit more at the physical world. Yeah. In the same way we discovered how water was composed of hydrogen oxygen molecules that um that, that 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 we will do that with consciousness right so i think that like part of the problem of getting to this and maybe maybe for some people it's obvious why this poses a problem but it always takes me a little bit to shake the following thought i don't know if it happens to you the thought that, well, of course, your brain just causes consciousness and understanding how brains do that is uh, what we will learn when we learn about consciousness. And I don't, I don't endorse that. I think that Nagel's right to point out to a deep problem, but I always have to kind of shake 
the like the view that my, at least my naive view coming into the philosophy of mind is that neurons make me feel a certain way and when they fire a certain way yeah so why why isn't that the obvious answer i actually think a lot of my neuroscientist colleagues have this view they they think this is a non problem you know what do you mean well because like all those kind of reductionist or functionalist explanations would hold even if we didn't have conscious experiences and here's where we're dangerously close to talking about zombies but um <laughs> but that's i think the uh the idea is that you're not exact you're not actually explaining consciousness if you talk about the function of these uh, neuronal processes and how it leads to perception, which causes certain behaviors or causes certain aversions, or those just don't seem like they're explanations because the very thing that it's trying to explain could not be there, and the explanations would, wouldn't change. You could describe... I think, is this fair to say you could describe all of the physical states of a brain and still have an extra question left over? Nagel says, the most important characteristic feature of conscious mental phenomenon is very poorly understood. Most reductionist theories do not even try to explain it. And careful examination will show that no currently available concept of reduction is applicable to it. I do not deny that conscious mental states and events cause behavior, nor that they may be given functional characterizations. I deny only that this kind of thing exhausts their analysis. Any reductionist program has to be based on an analysis of what is to be reduced. If the analysis leaves something out, the problem will be falsely posed. It is useless to base the defense of materialism on any analysis of mental phenomena that fails to deal explicitly with their subjective character, for there is no reason to suppose that a reduction which seems plausible when no attempt is made to account for consciousness can be extended to include consciousness. Without some idea, therefore, of what the subjective character of experience is, we cannot know what is required for a physical list theory. So, it's the, so what do you think he means by the subjective character of experience? I mean, I take, I take it that that phenomenology where you say, look, science is... is concerned with the objective everything that we that we study and measure and come up with theories with are ones in which we inherently uh, desire that other people share that knowledge um, or understand it in the same way so you and i can both understand that h2o makes water um, and you can even have um I think you would say to me, you can even have a theory that says that, well, neurons create conscious experiences, but that does not provide us with any theory of what consciousness experience is and how we have it. So it's, inher it's inherently subjective. It's only something that I have access to. Um, you have access to only the things that you experience, and it's, it's unclear what would even be required of a scientific theory to explain that feeling, that feeling of what it's like. 
So is it because we don't know what the explanandum or the thing to be explained is because it's private that we can't imagine what it would be like to give a scientific or physicalist explanation of it? Or is it because of the actual character of that experience? In other words, if I could assume that everybody has, every human has roughly the same, it's the same character of experience, could I then, could I be more confident that there could be a good scientific explanation of it? So is it just that problem, like a problem of other minds? I don't think so, right? I don't think I don't think so either. And this is, I think, when we were talking a bit earlier, you said something which was exactly what I was thinking uh, throughout reading this article is, is Nagel just pointing to an epistemological problem, that of just getting access to your thought, your your subjective experience? So, like, I, my my question was also: Is this an epistemological problem or a metaphysical problem that he's yeah. talking about? Is he making any? So one thing that I think he's not doing is coming out as a dualist, right? He's not saying that phenomenal subjective experience can't be explained in physical terms, therefore there are two kinds of substance. Um, I think he thinks that it's possible that our subjective experience can be explained in material terms, but that we don't we're so far from having any kind of theory to explain it that we can't even con- our concepts right now aren't in any way suitable for that kind of explanation and we can't conceive of what an explanation would look like um, right so so it would need like some sort of paradigm shift not just like a development in neuroscience and cognitive science you like a deep, like a paradigm shift in, like almost a deep shift in our our access to basic concepts. So, you know, you know, one of the things he says is that imagine a Martian wants to understand what it's like to be human. He is trying his best to to have an experience that a human would have, um, say, vision or something like that. He is still experiencing what it's like to be human as a Martian. In the same way that, like, we can use, you know, we can roughly try to close our eyes and and echolocate, um, but we are still we are still experiencing that as, in this case, David closing his eyes and echolocating. How the hell can we ever get to um, a true understanding of somebody else's subjectivity? In that subjectivity, we we can't even right. Like, what words? What words could there be that would that would let you have that feeling of what it's like to be me right now? Like, we don't have those words. Yeah, we don't have those words. We don't have those concepts. We don't have... Science doesn't have the, the, the method that... So, in other words, it would have to be some sort of, like, reformulation of how we understand science and the scientific method because the scientific method does try to understand the world from the outside. Right. With pretty much everything except conscious experience, you can do that. But with conscious experience, you can't. And so, you know, that's the hard problem. We don't all have 
the same kind of access. And in fact, the only person who has the full access is the person who's having that experience. Um, and so how would science even begin to approach that? How would a Martian be even approach what it's like to be Tamler? So is the idea that we can be misled, like Dave, David, you might be misled into thinking that you can understand what it's like to be Tamler. I think his, I think Nagel thinks there's something deeper here, right? And it, like, it yeah, does turn do on too. this, right? Like it's, it's of course, like I, you're hungry, I'm hungry. We both have roughly the same you know, internal organs and in roughly the same brain uh, type and all that. Like, so I know what it's like to be hungry. I can, I wouldn't be completely off in saying that I, I know what it's like when you're hungry. Cause it's probably very much what it's like for me. I think Nagel wants to say, I don't know what it's like to be you when you're hungry. <laughs> right. I, I think that he is pointing to something just inherent about subjectivity, not about bodily states or men, even maybe um, some basic mental states like doing uh, two plus two equals four. Like we both have the same content in our mind. I know that you are probably doing something similar in your brain when you're computing two plus two equals four. But what I'll never have access to is what it feels like for you to be doing it. Um, so I actually yeah. think, though, that that's, I don't think that that's all he's saying, because that really does boil down to the problem of other minds, right? Which I think is a problem in, like, a philosophical problem in one sense, but it doesn't seem to be the same as the problem of understanding conscious experience. I mean, what but, I'm saying is that other minds, that, that here he says that, like I can understand a whole lot about your psychology by dint of sharing a lot of the same brain kind body and experiences as you like, that's not the problem he's tackling. Right. Like I have, I do have true, true knowledge about, you know, what you're likely to do and say when you're hungry. Um, and I, I just will never have subjective access to it. But here's the question then. Will you have a understanding of why you feel hungry and why there is that character of David feeling hungry? Like, So set aside the fact that you won't know what it's like for me to be hungry. Will you be given like a, a good physicalist explanation that, uh, that, that you feel sat satisfying, satisfactorily explains how this perception that's in front of you right now appears to you and how that how that works because i feel like he's saying that's the thing like this other way of trying to understand other minds or a bat minds is just a more intuitive way of seeing the problem but ultimately this is a problem about science being inadequate to even explain to us our own experiences oh i i don't read it that way i think that he thinks that you don't have a problem um, that is something that you are given already by, by, as a result of being Tamler, you're given that knowledge of what it's like to be Tamler. Now, you, sure. You could be given also knowledge about why, um, the physical processes of your blood sugar dipping, causing you to be crabby. And you could be told that that's what's causing you to be crabby. But the thing that is trying to be explained here, like what it's like to be Tamler is something you always have access to. 
Uh, no, I agree with that, but but what I don't have is an explanation for why like certain neurons firing in my brain gives me the experience of pain or certain neurons in my brain give gives me the experience of seeing red or whatever. Like that's the thing that I'm talking about. You're right. Like the one thing that I know is what it's like to be Tamler at this moment. Like that's a basic fact that I know. Um I have to know it. Um, yeah. It's the it's arguably the only thing I know. Right. I know. That's that's why I kind of think that it's really about just what it's like to be and therefore what it's like to be other people since we already know what it's like to be. I don't think he's trying to pose a particular pro, like I don't know. Honestly, I don't know. But but you know, like problems like the inverted spectrum where um where suppose that you see the spectrum one way and I see it completely opposite like what i see is red you see is violet or whatever um but we have the same words for it and we behave the same when presented with these similar stimuli um there's no way that i actually can have access to to your conscious experience you and what i know just by stipulating it is that you are actually consciously experiencing something different than me but there's nothing in your behavior that might lead me to be able to to know that so you right. don't think that this problem then is the reduction of the mental to the physical. It's the reduction of other people's mental to the, to the physical world besides my own. So, yeah, kind of, because you could have, say, a theory that like um, an identity theory. So this says that um, every time... I think of the concept money, I have a particular brain state. And um, that brain state is thinking of money as David. Um, uh, like, I think I could have a pretty complete theory of my own physical processes giving rise to my consciousness and understand it in, in a deeper way, but yet have n not gained any knowledge about, about, uh, how physical processes cause your consciousness because I have no idea whether you are in fact experiencing the same thing that I am when this particular brain state is, is activated. Wait though, because if I am, if I want to know why, why do I see, why do I have these experiences that I have? And you say, well, these neurons are firing in your brain and those are identical with your experience. And, it seems like they're, wait, no, but that's not what I'm asking. I'm asking how that works. Because, like, my brain is just a bunch of yeah, cells. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. the world is the world. Like, how does that work? Now, I thought the explanatory gap is, is, is that problem. You're right. You're right. I think it's just, I, I think I got caught up so much in the subjective versus objective being you versus the rest of the world. But it's true that it's it's not a satisfying theory that it's like when whatever these these nerve cells are firing that makes red like that's yeah. just yeah you've told me a fact but you but you're hiding how it makes red right I think is it is it in this essay that he says it's like matter and being told that energy and matter are the same thing yeah um yeah well unless you have a theory that tells me how they're the same thing like that statement like I can believe it but but it doesn't actually explain anything we have that theory in physics we don't have that theory for consciousness yeah yeah let me read that passage so he says 
For example, people are now told at an early age that all matter is really energy. But despite the fact that they know what is means, most of them never form a conception of what makes this claim true because they lack the theoretical background. And so, like, yeah, if you tell me that matter is energy, I like that doesn't that doesn't really help me. I like if I had the right theoretical background, I could understand what that is, but I don't. And so telling me that isn't exactly giving me a, a ton of information. So he says, usually when we're told that X is Y, we know how it is supposed to be true, but that depends on the conceptual or theoretical background and is not conveyed by the is alone. We know how both X and Y refer and the kinds of things to which they refer, and we have a rough idea how the two referential paths might converge on a single thing, be it an object, a person, a process, an event, or whatever. But when the two terms of, of the identification are very disparate, it may not be so clear how it could be true and a theoretical framework may have to be supplied to enable us to understand this. Without the framework, an air of mysticism surrounds the identifications. Right, and I think that the temptation uh, is to say something like, you know, well, neuroscience, well, we're going to actually get down, like, we're going to get down to the level of single nerves forming networks, and we're going to be able to measure that in your brain, and we're going to show you um, a picture of a dog, and we'll be able to tell you exactly what is going on when you uh, see a dog. And what what Nagel is saying is, ah, it, that that last part is hand waving. Like that last part has just hand waved the most critical question, which is a question that we don't have at all. When I tell, say, a young child, "Did you know that ice is just water that got really cold?" Um, when I say is just, right, I can then kind of explain to her that it means that, well, you know, as atoms slow down, they enter this different state. Um, uh, there is not even a conceivable theory that would get us from <clears throat> the neurons to the what it feels like. Um, yeah, it, experience doesn't seem like it has anything to do with neurons, and it's like... It, it leaves us out of it. I mean, and that's the problem, right? Yeah. If, and somehow that's getting represented and guiding the body's behavior. I believe that. But the actual phenomena isn't being explained with that kind of explanation. Although what is being explained is impressive, which is how those things lead me to act in the ways that I act, but it doesn't get at the phenomenology. That's right. And that's what I was conflating before, just the like powerful notion that you know what you are experiencing and you know the physical processes that are giving rise to that experience puts you in a unique position to know those two things, but it does not put you in any position to bridge them. And that's right. what Nagel thinks we need. And which is why I think it's an epistemological problem that he's ultimately landing on here. Right. Because I don't think, like you said, he's not arguing for dualism. And he's also not saying anything like, well, you know, brains don't cause consciousness. He's just saying that whatever the way in which we're talking about physical things causing consciousness, like they fall under scrutiny. And so when he says air of mysticism, that's the part that I really like. Uh, it's unlike, <laughs> unlike anything else. Uh, unlike most things, 
I am left with an air of mysticism about this stuff too. And, Which part? And Which side? The just an air of mysticism about how physical things could cause uh, consciousness, right? Yeah. The problem really is hard. Who I forget who who said that that maybe maybe we'll just never have the concepts available to us like this. Um, well, Colin again said that it's inaccessible to human beings to understand. He's the the real mysterian. Right, yeah, like it's a hardcore a, mysterian, yeah, yeah, like like dogs doing calculus, right? Like they have brains right. and they can know things. They'll just never know what we know. And maybe there is a class of creatures that can know exactly what this bridge, like what can bridge these two in terms of a scientific theory. But they wouldn't even be able to explain it to, <laughs> to us, right? And and I think that this is a more modest claim, which is. Currently, not only do we not have the theory in place, we don't even have, we can't conceive of how a theory would explain it, but maybe we'll have some sort of conceptual breakthrough that allows us to cross that bridge, but we don't have it yet. And the the things that, you know, some combination of neuroscience and philosophers are throwing at us, either denying that experience exists, which is crazy, or giving us functionalist or reductionist explanations for consciousness don't actually explain consciousness. Right, uh, and the, the, the uh, appeal of reductionism, like you can even have a very sophisticated sort of view of reductionism that, that is like, well, you sort of understand how atoms cause the property of liquids or solids and you understand how those solids come together to make cars. And uh, so you know that cars are made of atoms, but a car is so much more complex than an atom. Um, But you would be a fool to deny that cars can't be explained by our understanding of atoms. It would just be like a really, really long story. You'd need all of those bridge theories. It's easy to think that, um, Consciousness ought to be like how atoms cause cars, right? Because everything else in the world is. And he's yeah. saying, like, no, we're in this weird position where, like, this is the one thing in the world that that can, you you know that that does not carry over. So, what do you think of this response to Nagel? So, it's trying to walk the line between eliminativism, which says there are no real conscious experiences. And that's an illusion, which I don't even understand and I (laughs) think is disingenuous. Um, But then there's this idea, no, there's consciousness, but it is the part of consciousness that seems like it couldn't be reduced or explained in physicalist terms. That's an illusion. So, yes, I see a a red curtain in front of me and I see the redness, but the idea that the part of it that seems like, wait, there's no way that a, you know, neurophysiological explanation could capture what it's like to to see red, that's an illusion. This is a view that I think my colleague Josh Weisberg holds in some better articulated form than what I just gave, and also Keith Frankish. Like, what? I I don't know what to make of that. I don't I don't totally get that. But do you, do you have you come across I, this? Uh, no, I I 
the non-material character of consciousness is the illusion, but the consciousness itself isn't. I mean, it sounds like a limitativism of some sort. Um, It's just, it's just specifying that like we're eliminating the hard part. (laughs) Like, yeah. um, Or just denying that there is, I mean, I think people say of this Nagel essay that he um, introduced a problem that isn't really a problem. This, this heavy leaning on subjective experience isn't the problem he makes it out to be, but like, I've not read any satisfactory answer as to why it's not a problem, right? They usually fall back on some sort of physicalism or materialism, which I guess are used interchangeably uh, nowadays. Um, that is just as unsatisfying. I want to separate this from like the, and here I'll talk about the zombie argument briefly and also the Mary argument. So let's talk the Mary argument, which is that Mary knows all the physical facts about color. Yeah. Mary, the color scientist. Uh, But she's been kept in a black and white room her whole life. and, And meanwhile has learned every possible physical fact there is to know about color and color perception and then she goes out into the world she's released and sees red for the first time she learns something new and therefore conscious experience can't be physical because she knew everything already about color perception and still learned something when she saw red i take it that that's stronger than anything nagel is saying right now he be uh, that is an argument for dualism it is saying that physicalism can't in principle explain our say perception of colors and what it feels like to see the colors and i think nagel isn't saying that he's just saying that right now with the conceptual schemes that we have mary couldn't know what it was like to see red maybe at some point in the future she could but not now um right and, and right. similarly with the zombie argument, he's not making any kind of conceivability claim here. He's- right. So the, the Frank Jackson, Mary, the color scientist um, is interesting. You know, I think that, that in both cases, uh, what, what is highlighted is that Nagel isn't making a, Nagel isn't offering a positive claim here. Yeah. Um, he's only saying how problematic it is that we can't reconcile um, like you said in the beginning, this the objective and the subjective in particular in the case of consciousness. Um, yeah, I was like the, the Mary, the color scientist thing always amused me, but it wasn't until I was reading, preparing for this, that I realized that Frank Jackson was uh, making a dualistic argument for epiphenomenal dualism. Like the, the, the view that consciousness exists, it just hasn't, just doesn't interact causally with the world. Yeah. Um, which is so wonky. Yeah. And, and again, like depends on us really having intuitions about what it would mean to learn every physical fact about color perception, you know, like that's yeah. my problem with it as well mm-hmm. as the zombie argument, like, and any conceivability argument, like we can say we can, we understand these things or can conceive of them but i don't know what that means and i certainly wouldn't draw any strong metaphysical conclusions from what i think or say i can conceive or in the jackson case understand like what does it mean to learn every physical fact about 
No, I know. And there's just like, you know, there's so many of these um, thought experiments have this sense to me of mock, <clears throat> mock insight. It seems so reasonable because you have an intuition. Like I have an intuition that Mary has something that she didn't have before. Right. Um, but the case has snuck in, as you say, the case has snuck in the word knows everything. The devil's in the details. Like you could construct, you could be malicious and construct a whole bunch of some of these thought puzzles that would lead to wild intuitions merely because you fucked with the way in which you asked them. Like, like what? And like, and, and the, and the arguments really depend on you really understanding what that means to know everything about, uh, and we don't. And I think Nagel, he doesn't do any of those kinds of thought experiments. Like, this is what's so, like, I think they're getting at a similar problem, Chalmers, Jackson, and Nagel here, about this disconnect between conscious experience and physicalist explanation or naturalistic explanation. But Nagel is, is doing it in a way that doesn't rely on asking us to try to imagine something that we really can't imagine or conceive of. And the only cost for that is being a little more modest about, uh, about the claims, not, going, not making a positive claim, as you said, about you know, physicalism being true or false or dualism or anything like that, just pointing to this real explanatory problem that we have that seems, at least for now, inescapable, like that it's not even clear how we would begin to approach solving it. I like that characterization of Nagel as, as sort of just, you know, all all he's saying here is is, wait, like, don't act like you've solved the problem. <laughs> right. There is this sort of cross-disciplinary like attempts at solving the problem of consciousness by putting together teams of like neuroscientists and philosophers. And that always strikes me as sort of weird because the problem of consciousness is 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 one that we don't even we don't even know what the right things to put together would be. It's sort of like let's just pretend that this isn't as intractable as it seems and like get some people to do MRIs and some people to write about, you know, limitative reductionism or whatever. Well, I was going to say like, that's the, the things that he says at the end actually sort of point to at least trying to do this by trial. You're right. We don't even know who we would bring into it, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't at least try. So he does give a kind of positive, almost hopeful. Um, so he says, we, we have to develop a, such a phenomenology to describe the sonar experiences of bats, but it would be also possible to begin with humans. So start there. One might try to develop concepts that could be used to explain to a blind person blind from birth what it was like to see. One would reach a blank wall eventually, but it should be possible to divide a method of expressing in objective terms much more than we can at present with much greater precision. The loose intermodal analogies, for example, red is like the sound of a trumpet, which crops up in discussions of this subject are of little use. That should be clear to anyone who has both heard a trumpet and seen red. But structural features of perception might be more accessible to objective description, even though something would be left out. 
and concepts alternative to those we learn in the first person may enable us to arrive at a kind of understanding even of our own experience which is denied us by the very ease of description and lack of distance that subjective concepts uh, uh, afford. So he's thinking like, he has this like positive idea of just at least trying to take baby steps to developing a conceptual framework that would allow us to get a sense of what it's like to be somebody that's very different from us, like a deaf person or a blind person or or a seeing person if you are a blind person. Right. It reminds me a little bit of the aliens on Arrival who speak a language that (laughs) once taught to humans, once that language is taught to humans, allows them to see beyond time. Yes. It feels like there's something like of that flavor to what Nagel is saying. But then as you were reading that, I was thinking, um, you know, there, there, there is at least one example I can think of in psychophysiology, one that I've, I think, talked about at least twice on this podcast, which is the problem that we have of comparing the intensity of stimuli. Um, So this is uh, work that's, that has been done on taste and so the finding that some people have uh, more papilla on their tongue that makes them taste things more strongly right. leads to a real measurement problem. So, right. so you might say it's 10 out of 10, the hottest pepper I've ever eaten. And I say 10 out of 10, the hottest, you know, the hottest thing I've ever put in my mouth. And we just ha- actually have fundamentally different experiences. You have less papilla, so it's just nowhere near as strong as it is for me. And the way that they've gotten a, that, you know, this is like in the 50s, the psychophysicist just discovered to get around it is to say, well, instead of saying like how hot in your mouth this is, um, tell me how intense this is compared to uh, the loudness of these tones that I'm going to play you. And so they used loudness scales to say like, it's as hot as this 90 decibel noise is. And they found that when they did that, you could actually compare across people in taste so they're creating a new language by giving them this tool of cross modality it's like the babiest of steps to understanding how like it might feel for somebody to have a super intense flavor experience that you're never going to have you can say like oh it's like how when i hear a sound so loud that i have to cover my ears right i guess right so the idea isn't that we're like, I can just imagine, oh, it's spicy, but it's like way spicier than what I'm tasting right now. Cause that's easy to imagine. Um, yeah. You getting that. It's more that I, there's a level of spiciness that I don't even like, I, th- there's no food that could give me. Right. And yet, like, I can sort of a little bit see what that might be like by just take like a, a, a noise that's so loud that it's different than any other kind of noise that I would normally experience. Right. And you're like, Oh, like there is at least one feature of your experience that has been communicated to me. Right. Yeah. And that's, that's like a, the babiest of steps. Like I, I don't, you know, I think Nagel's optimism here is just optimism for the sake of, of, of ending optimistically there's this kind of neurophenomenology have you heard about this which is a marriage of continental philosophy and like neuroscience (laughs) 
which no. I guess this guy, Vale, not Valero, that's the gas station, but something like Valero. I was reading a little bit about it today, but and I downloaded the, a paper about it. I, I like to imagine that the paper is entitled "What It's Like to Be Jurgen Habermas." Varela, Varela, not Valero. Yeah, I mean, if, yeah, what it's like to be. Uh, you know what it's like to be Heidegger. Uh, <laughs> oh, only one specific aspect. <laughs> like a super taster. <laughs> uh, but I, I like this idea because, you know, continental philosophy and, you know, especially phenomenology, the, 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 the field is very much about subjective experience right. and takes that as basic it's an interesting idea to marry that with this objective, the objective third-person methods of, of science and see, like, what produces. But again, I can, like, you can tell me that that's happening, but I don't know what that, like, I don't have a sense of what that could possibly produce precisely because of the problem that Nagel has elaborated. Right, right. <laughs> No, yeah, yeah, it is. I was also thinking about this, this inter, this subjectivity, um, being being fundamentally about our inability to understand anybody's experience. Again, I I don't think Nagel is talking about that specifically, but but uh, but it's like that kind of idea of yeah of of, of just going way off what we normally think of in terms of the scientific method. We're gonna need something more radical than that. And we're going to need aliens to come whisper in our ear. <laughs> or at least Husserlians. Yes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's the best uh, thing you've said in a while. <laughs> it's like a European Rick and Morty episode. <laughs> Husserlians. <laughs> we were talking about how we went down this rabbit hole and it was like we felt like we knew less about it. You know, yeah, I wanted to talk a little bit about that too. <laughs> okay. oh, there is no, there is, I don't think any, you know, there are some things that I, you know, like theoretical physics that I'm just not going to read because I know I won't understand it. But this has all of the guise of, of like, these are yeah. all words that I understand. These are all like the, the process by which philosophers make arguments and think, like I understand. And I read this philosophy of mind stuff and like it literally sucks knowledge out of me. But it's like, not always, right? Like, there are times where you feel like you get it, and you, you know where all the, where the camps are and the different positions, and you understand them, and then it just goes away. You know what I mean? Like, it has this appearance of, oh, I think I get it, because, like you say, we understand the words, and we understand what it feels like to be a conscious being, and yet it's hard to speak intelligently about it. Yeah, and it, and I I find that I don't like it's one of those cases unlike ethics where all of my intuitions really do feel pumped like faked. Maybe that's maybe there's reason for that. Maybe ethical judgments are just straightforwardly obvious to us because there is some deep sense in which we have, you know, we've evolved to make these kinds of inter social judgments about others. But there is no conceptual tool uh box that seems to allow me to have intuitions about these cases like i think i understood the conceivability argument once like i understood it once i remember i remember that day it was an interesting day and then i just never never got it again 
the ontological argument, you know, for for the existence of God is like that too. Mm-hmm. It's like <laughs> I have it, I have it. No, I lost it. I lost it. <laughs> because I can imagine. Oh wait. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Maybe that's a good place to end. I hope we're just as lost as the listener is if the listener <laughs> feels lost it's the one essay here that we've read where i i really like i don't know how good an essay nagel wrote part of it is i think this conflation of the subjective character like this is what led to a little bit to the confusion we had at the beginning the, there is a lot of talk about the problem being the subjective character of experience rather than the character of experience like what it is right. like what the experience is that we feel uh and he focuses a lot on the fact that it's feeling like that to me those two things get um mushed together which there's the problem of not knowing what the thing is to be explained because i don't have access to to what that thing feels like and then there's a problem of how the thing itself is reduced to scientific yeah. naturalistic yeah. explanation and those two things are di- those are two s- different problems although i could see that they might have the same source but they seem like different problems and the the essay i think i don't know maybe if you read it over and over again more carefully maybe i'll have that would, yeah. <laughs> maybe i'll have one day where i Hey, um, before before we end, <clears throat> because I want to relate to you on a deeply subjective mm-hmm. level, what do you think it feels like to be Jose Altuve's bat? Oh, man. <laughs> uh, that was great. I, my adopted step team made me very proud. And they're playing the first game, first, uh, game of the World Series against the Nationals tonight. I am fully on the bandwagon. You're, Are you rooting for the Astros? I hope you at least did. I will. Yeah. Uh, When would I root for the Yankees? Like, I mean, like, I don't even care about baseball and I don't want to root for the Yankees. Altuve has like a 100% approval rating. Like, nobody doesn't (laughs) like Altuve except the biggest, yeah, I mean, the asshole Yankee fans who are chanting fuck Altuve in Yankee Stadium because they have zero class. Good. That just must feel good, though, if you're Altuve. Like, I would love for Yankees fans to chant fuck Pizarro. (laughs) <laughs> well, we'll see if we can make that happen. This <laughs> is like one, only one or two have done it. <laughs> Fuck this. Oh, dun, 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 dun. Uh, all right. All right. Join us next time on Very Bad Wizard. The great impost has spoken. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. Who are you? Just a very bad wizard.